0: We join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's word. Let's bow our heads, well, Father. Again, we come before you and ask you for your for your help, for your wisdom, for your guidance, for clarity to take both to heart and mind the things that will go forth this morning. That we would continue to love and delight in your word to walk in it by faith, to see its, its grace continue to strengthen us, that we may stand against the, the evil day and having done all to stand. Lord, we thank You for this church. We ask that You'd continue to bless us and strengthen us to be a faithful witness in our city and beyond, and that we would continue to love You and to love one another we know that your word gives us the strength and wisdom to do that so lord we do once again ask for your mercy on us this morning that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ it's in his name we pray amen okay hey guys go ahead and open up your bibles to the book of second peter book of second peter Getting into the third and final section this morning, chapter 3, uh, we will cover the first two verses, so please follow along as I read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So a brief introduction into this third and final chapter of the book of 2 Peter. And I think just based on the words, there's some repetition here and what a blessing it is to be able to witness. You know, it's been, it's been a little while, but to be able to witness and and uh, experience four baptisms and to have that be a public a public testimony of what Christ has done. And as we teach here and as we believe, when it comes to water baptism, it's, it's much more than simply submerging a person under water. It's much more than just the pleasure of dunking them. The church comes together to bear witness of the power of the Gospel at work. So that when someone stands there and proclaims that they identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, We have a very precious picture of that, not only of the cleansing of from sin from the sinner, but even more significantly, we do have a picture of the Lord Jesus Himself identifying with those sinners, that He has taken our sin upon Himself, that He died as an atoning sacrifice, that He was buried for three days and then rose victorious. The grave, and so we have a radical picture of that God in His sovereign grace bringing life to a sinner who, otherwise, apart from the life giving power of the gospel, would remain dead. The reason I bring that up is because it gives us an important word, a very important word, significant especially to the second letter of Peter, and that is the word remember. Talked about that word quite a bit, remember, a very key theme in the mind of Peter. And I want us to remember that. We are able to remember that. To call it to mind deliberately. To remember the death of our Lord. To remember even in the Lord the death of a sinner who was then raised to walk in newness of life. And the Word of God is made clear on that truth. And so taking that Word as well, remember, remember. We can remind ourselves to do that again this morning. Say that because Christians can be a forgetful bunch. We can put aside, even forget the truth that we have learned, the truth by which we have been discipled, the truth that we are meant to hold on to and refresh ourselves with constantly. Not as a mere passing image in the mind, but remember to the point that it ends up changing our lives. Because we're, re- we're not merely remembering things or experiences. We are calling to mind deliberately truth that will sanctify us and conform us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, Peter repeats himself in these first two verses. If you remember in the first chapter, he says that he desires his people to remember If you want to draw your attention to the first chapter of Second Peter, in verse 13 he says this, now remember Peter's point of view, he knows he's about to die, he is under sentence of death by the Roman authorities, he does not have much time, but he wants to encourage these churches because they are awaiting a very important event in the first century church, that is the return of Christ in judgment, hasn't happened yet. And so, as, as chapter 3 will indicate going forward, there will be scoffers, there will be mockers who do not believe that Christ will come in judgment. And so he says this to them, look at verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. And so as short as this letter is, Peter believes it important enough to, at the the tail end of it, to say in his closing remarks, "I, I want to tell you this again, that I want to stir you up, stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And of course, he will point to that source. And if we really want to divide this first couple of verses, we could simply do it this way. One, I would say, an apostle's affection. And the second part would be the apost- an apostle's admonishment. And think of the place here. Let's look at verse 1. Kind of get the flow of this. He says, this now, beloved. I believe that's very important here for one reason, if, if only one reason. It is this. Think about chapter 2. He has just gotten done raking false prophets over the coals. You sense a righteous indignation from him. He is passionate about not only exposing these false teachers, but warning these churches against those false teachers. Knowing their character, knowing their behavior, knowing their unbelief, knowing their apostasy. The church must be resolute and vigilant and stand guard against these lest they be caught in that errant teaching especially immature believers as peter clearly indicates that immature believers in particular fall victim to these false teachers and all of their spiritual trickery but now he comes back in this opening verse this now beloved as if to say i still i still i, I am still with you You are the beloved of God. We are God's beloved flock of which I am a part. And so he reminds them of his affections toward them. And I believe most importantly of God's affections toward them. While they are false prophets, while they are leading the flock astray, you, beloved, I am talking to now. And I am reminding you again of our mutual love for each other And God's saving love toward us. I think when we come to the Word together, it's important to refresh our minds um, at that truth every once in a while. That when we hear the Word of God, we we are His beloved. So great is His love for us that He has brought us to life in His Son, but He has also given us a new heart by which we are able to hear His Word and understand it and apply it and to delight in it. That's what the Beloved do. So you have to remember that. That God has loved us. He has set His saving affections upon us for a particular purpose. That is to proclaim the Gospel. That is to walk in fellowship with Him. That is to enjoy His holy presence. Never to depart again as His holy people. And so He says, this is now Beloved once again returning their attention It's easy. I mean, most of us have been in that place, have we not? We hear a, we come to church, maybe we hear a fiery sermon, and it's just doom and judgment and condemnation for those who don't know Christ or for those who are leading those in Christ astray. But then he returns us, hey, look. And this is what I do to you today, because we've been we've been neck deep in it, warning against the perils of false teaching and false teachers. But just to acknowledge, as Peter does, we are God's beloved. And so together, even now, we hear his voice. We hear his voice in the precious word of God as his beloved flock. And so he says, This the second letter I am writing to you, getting into the admonishment part. Of course, what was the first letter? It was first Peter. So drawing from that, this is his second letter that he is writing to these churches, in which he is stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And so we come back to that most important theme in 2 Peter. We've talked about knowledge, right? A huge theme in 2 Peter. Well, another one writing right beside that is the importance of remembering. Now, something that is particular to Peter in terms of its of understanding it, as we've established from the beginning of this study, is that P- Second Peter sort of acts like a New Testament Deuteronomy. Remember Deuteronomy, second law, where the law has already been pronounced, but then before Moses dies, he stands before the congregation of Israel and declares to them the law afresh, giving warnings as they are about to enter the promised land. See, sort of a play here. Especially when Peter talks in chapter 3 about a new heaven and new earth. We see all the, the trappings of Deuteronomy just before Israel entered the promised land to see their enemies routed in the same way. Christ now is King of kings, Lord of lords, judging the nations. That's commenced. And now Christians, again, the new Israel, the Israel of God in Christ, can begin taking the new creation that is our promised land via the proclamation of the Gospel. Not by the sword, but by the sword of the Spirit to proclaim the good news of Christ's death and resurrection and His reign as King to every tongue and tribe and nation. So remember, Israel taking the promised land of Canaan was but a shadow of the true promised land which will, as the gospel advances, inevitably and irresistibly and undeniably will go to the entire earth, which is why Peter says this new heaven and new earth will be a place where righteousness dwells. This is what we want to see this morning in this admonishment. He says, I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind. So we have a couple, couple key words here, right? Words that we've gone over before, but it's good to, to return to them. He's already stirred up their mind, but he says, remember this, I want to stir up your mind again. This word stirring up just means to agitate, to churn, refers to emotion. The same word is used in John 6, verses 16 through 18, when the disciples are out to sea, they start to cross the sea to Capernaum, and what happens? It becomes dark, the sea begins to get stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Now, I don't want to see this as something in our minds like there's a storm in our minds and there's chaos. It's just, it's just a, a, an uncontrollable gale that's going on. I think what this points to is the reality of action in the mind. That our minds are at work. That sometimes, as I've already mentioned as believers, we tend to stop thinking. We tend to stop remembering. Calling to mind the Word of God. Calling to mind the truth of life in the Spirit failing to call to mind the power of the Gospel. The Christian's mind should be something that is always at work. I mean, we'll grant you you know, rest when you're actually sleeping. But while we are awake, while we are operating in this world as Christians, no matter the structure in which we are operating in, we are to have the mind of Christ. We are to stir up our minds to think things through according to the standard of God's Word. So I think the better way of understanding this, especially when it pertains to the body of Christ, is it's not just random chaotic movement in the mind. Think of a current, that there is water flowing in a particular direction. Right. We would say that our minds are flowing Godward, taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. We brought up that passage often. Our minds are to be stirred, not still. That was something that was very encouraging. I saw a bunch of you guys at the rally yesterday up in Denver. Very encouraging to see that. But man, you want to talk about stirring up. right? You saw a bunch of Christians there who were stirred up. They were thinking it through. They were processing the truth being proclaimed from the steps of the Capitol. It was amazing to see that in a public forum. Christians, several of them, coming up there, started with our, our bro Jeremy here, coming up and on the capital steps preaching the gospel preaching truth stirring up Christians to act right but not to act in a chaotic way to act biblically to step up with courage and with truth to confront principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age to confront them with the truth of God's word that was something, Jeremy, if you don't mind, I'm quoting Jeremy here. One thing he did say, you know, what do we have? He said we have the sword of the Spirit. That's what we have. That's the weapon of our warfare. To tear down strongholds. To tear down everything that assaults the Word of God and the Kingdom of Christ. And I think it's, it, it's a very important reminder for us that rather than being Christians who are stagnant, being Christians who idolize comfort, that we are Christians who are stirred up to see the Gospel go forward in every area of society. Now yes, we are small in number, but we should not be discouraged. It was referenced yesterday and by one of the speakers that it is typically the minority who tends to make a difference. Think of Gideon. Gideon's army, initially thousands in number. And what did God say to him? you got too many people in your army, Gideon. It's too big. Cut it down a little bit. Still too many. Cut it down all the way to 300. And with that very small number, they sacked the armies of the enemy. Why? One reason only. Do you know why they were victorious? Because God was with them. That made all the difference. It could have been Gideon by himself. It didn't even have to be Gideon. It could have been anyone. But if God was with them, the enemy would run in defeat. I think sometimes that's the first thing we have to stir our minds up to is that one amazing truth is that Christ is the victor. Christ is triumphant. We preach a triumphant victorious gospel everywhere we are. I think of all the things that the church forgets, especially in this day and age, is that we are victorious in Christ. The victory was won 2,000 years ago. And here we are, wishy-washy, about whether or not we're really going to make it. About whether or not the Gospel's truly going to do the work that the Bible itself says it will do. And why do we forget? We forget because we do not stir up Our minds. So Peter says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stir up your mind. He says, your sincere mind. Okay, Sincere, another important word. Check it out. Where it means unmixed, uncontaminated, free from the corrupting influence and all of the surrounding madness and apostasy that is occurring both in his time and ours. It is the idea that they, their mind stands in the full light of God's approval. That it is tested. That it is tried. And those guards, those mental guards have been put in place so that there is no compromise in the way that they think about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to say that it is laid bare. See, it's without, it's without hypocrisy. This is a mind with nothing to hide. That when the light of truth is shown upon it, it is shown to be true, sincere, a mind of integrity. Now think about what Peter has already said. Think back all the way to First Peter. In chapter 1, verse 13, Peter is urging them to the same thing. Now even though this is primarily geared toward Christians persevering in the face of out, outside persecution and not inward false teachers, he still says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that same event was in view. But he's already telling them beforehand, prepare your minds for action. See, this, is, this, this involves the way you think about God. It, the way, it involves the way you think about the opposition. It involves the way you think about Christ's work in your midst and who you are in Him. He says, keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely. Right Again, when He says, prepare your minds for action, He's saying literally, gird up the loins of your mind. We talked about that. We studied that that phrase. Gird up the loins of your mind. So if you were wearing your clothing back then, you would gird up your loins so that you could move quickly. So that you could move efficiently. This is battle language. You didn't have a flowing robe when you went out to battle. No, you tucked it up and you were able to move quickly. So you were dangerous. So you were efficient. So you wouldn't get tangled up and get yourself killed or get someone else killed. It is to be unencumbered and untangled in your own mind so you can think freely and clearly about the promises of God. See, this is more than just having an open mind. This is having a mind captive to the Word of God itself. But a mind that is untangled, but it's not distracted by all of the compromise, by all of the temptation, by all of this fancy new teaching that false teachers bring about. We want to, especially in times like Peter is describing, even in our own day, it is so important that we are able to think in an uncompromised way where we are not second guessing the promises of God, where we are not, sec- not second guessing the, the validity of his word. Think about what, what Paul says in Philippians 1.10. He says this, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, Have you been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Right. Sincere and blameless. Same thing going on. Why? Because they're awaiting a certain day. What is that day? The day of Christ. Earlier he says... I am confident of this very thing. The one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So they too were anticipating this event. Paul was anticipating the day of Christ. And so the admonishments were similar. Have a sincere mind. Be sincere and blameless. But look at this in verse 10 once again. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. The only way you can approve the things that are excellent is if your mind is unencumbered and untangled from the things of this world, from all those things which seek to sow compromise within you. But I think what's encouraging is it seems that these churches have paid attention to Peter's admonishments from the first letter, that they have prepared for action. That they have kept sober in spirit. That their hope is completely fixed on grace. How do we know? Because by the time he writes a second letter, he knows their minds are sincere. A sincere mind is a prepared mind. A sincere mind is a sober mind. And so, Peter's audience in listening to this as this day approaches, this day of the Lord as we find out, this day of God, is one that is so key to the endurance of the church, they must remember what has happened. So that's why he says in verse 2, by way of reminder that you should remember. Right? Remember. Huge pattern. You realize that the first few instances of remember in Scripture is God remembering. Remembering His people. Remembering His promise. Then God remembered numbers. He calls things to mind. He does not forget His promises. And by His grace, the thing He does not remember, if we are in Christ, are our sins. He remembers them no more. But think of this just a parallel from Deuteronomy, the words of Moses, by way of reminder. In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, we read this, "...only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. This admonishment carries over into New Covenant believers. We are to not forget the Gospel. We are to not forget Jesus Christ. We do not forget the things our eyes have seen. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. And so that legacy continues. What we have seen, what we have witnessed, to the power of Christ and His Gospel, we are to pass on. But we always call them to mind deliberately and regularly. And also, confidently. His promises are new every morning. They don't expire. They don't fade with time. Dust and moth do not destroy them. But he says here, back to Deuteronomy 4, and verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and they may teach their children. In Deuteronomy 8.3, we read something similar. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. See, in, in Peter's time, the church is, as it were, enduring their own wilderness. We talked about that parallel, the 40 years in the wilderness and the 40 years that that elapsed from Christ's ascension to the destruction of Jerusalem. There is a lot of persecution, there is a lot of deception, there is a lot of marginalization that Christians are enduring. Not unsimilar to what we endure today even in our own country. But he says this, why do we we remember? We remember... The Lord our God, He has led us in the wilderness those 40 years, that He might humble you, testing you. See, there's always a purpose to it. There's always a redemptive purpose. The humble man, the humble church, is a sanctified church. The humble church is a dependent church. A humble church has a high view of Christ. A humble church is a church that is not self-sufficient or self conceited He relies on the Lord, and when He is tested, He is found true. And this, finishing off this passage, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And we do, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Rather, we delight in them, and we love to learn them. One more thing from Deuteronomy 15.5, he says this, "...you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt." And the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this day. Same with the church. What do we remember? We remember our slavery to sin. We remember our slavery to the old creation. Our slavery to the flesh. That we were dead in sins and trespasses. And yet, but God, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. Don't forget that. You see that dependence there? Even when we were dead, even we were so lifeless, we could not respond to the gospel on our own. You realize that? God had to give us life. He had to grant us faith so that we could respond to the gospel. And yet now in Him we are alive. But we never forget where we came from. We never forget how God delivered us lest we become self-sufficient and proud, and forget the Lord. And so the same way we remember His deliverance of us from slavery to sin. What is it we remember? What do we call to mind? Like What, what, is, what is the, the, the substance of, of what we're remembering? We're, we're, well, He says very clearly. He says, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. I mean, we could take this verse and literally spend several months on it. Well, what commandments, right? What holy prophets? What's going on here? Oh, it's tons. It's, I mean, the whole counsel of God is in view. I think that's what Peter is alluding to. So think of it this way. When we confront principalities and powers, when we confront unrighteousness and injustice in our own society, when we confront wholesale rebellion against Jesus Christ, no matter what that institution may be, what do we bring to it? What is our foundation? It is the holy prophets and the commandment of Lord and Savior. In short, it's your Bible! Your Old Testament, your holy prophets, and the New Testament. The commandment of our Lord and Savior. What we call this is a Christian worldview. We use an entire worldview and impose it upon the situation. And we never go into any situation where we confront the forces of darkness without the Christian worldview. See, we care as believers about the whole counsel of God. Right? We don't go into battle cherry-picking verses. We keep in mind what all of God's Word has to say. The depth of it, the breadth of it, all of it. Because all of it speaks to all of life and every institution in this world. That's a worldview. And we never are to put it aside. We never are to operate without it. Remember, if you were there yesterday, you heard it. There's no neutrality. You are for God or you are against God. You worship Christ or you are anti-Christ. You obey Him or you rebel against Him. There's no middle ground. So why, pray tell, in the world should the Christian ever go into battle and put aside the commandment of Jesus and the Word of the Holy Prophets? There is no reason. This is the very basis, the very platform, the very substance of what we believe and what we teach. So we talk about the Holy Prophets. You know, how can we condense this, especially in light of what Peter's people are enduring? I think one thing we can understand is the Holy Prophet, of course, the law of God, right? God's commandments. Especially, you know, we believe, we teach continuity, but there are things in the Old Testament which still count for today, like, you shall have no other gods before me, don't murder, don't commit adultery. And yes, Greg, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, <laughs> that day of precious rest but I think especially too, warnings of judgment. We understand that the Holy Prophets, we'll get into that eventually, that the Holy Prophets warned God's people of judgment, of impending doom if they didn't repent. And most importantly, the Holy Prophets spoke of all that the Lord Jesus would accomplish, confirm, and fulfill. So that's the really condensed version of it. But that is to say We do not put the Old Testament aside in its entirety just because some of those those things have been done away in Christ, like the sacrificial system. It doesn't mean we just miss the the Old Testament wholesale. Because remember, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the new. It's the same God. It's the same Lord. It's the same Savior. I think we have this, though. In John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. So there's where you see some radical continuity. What was was the sum and substance of the Old Testament law? Love God and love your neighbor. Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. That's easy. We're pretty in love with ourselves. So use that as a standard. Guess what? It's pretty much the same thing in the New. The only real upgrade is... You love one another as Jesus loved. See, we didn't have that example in the Old Testament, but now in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate example of sacrificial, self-giving love. But we still love one another. And we still love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this time we have the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower us to do so. Forsaking all other idols. So that's the Holy Prophets. We understand its application for today. But also the Lord and Savior. Right. We look to Christ as, as king and ruler. Right. First as, first as Lord, but also He's Savior. Right. It was interesting. I was in a conversation with a gentleman yesterday, and sometimes you just have these really bizarre conversations that you don't really expect. I, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced He was a brother in the Lord, but when we were talking about Jesus in particular he kept emphasizing that he was Savior, that we believe in him as Savior, and that believing in him as anything else goes beyond the bounds of salvation, of that call to salvation. And I was trying to, got into a very friendly argument with him, but I said, look, you can't divide Christ. Now we understand that when you believe the gospel, you're not going to understand every single thing about Jesus. Really, he's inexhaustible. You're never going to know this side of eternity, every nuance, every jot and tittle about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, right? You're never going to know everything about Him in this life. But let's not divide Him. When we understand, I think what we clearly understand from this statement here is when we take Christ, when we receive Him, when we are united with Him, we are united with all of Him. Let's not try to split hairs here, but somehow, oh, we take a little bit of Jesus here, maybe a Savior first, and then His Lord. No, when He he brings you to life, He owns you. He is your Lord, He is your King, and there's nothing you can do about it. He is the Master. Because the Bible tells me so. Psalm 2, right? The Lord has established His King. Psalm 110, it's written all over the Old Testament that we look forward to this this King. This King to bring salvation and justice and true righteousness to the nations. In Revelation 1, we read of Jesus being the ruler of the kings of this world. An ongoing present reality. Right. We, we, We teach here that He is currently subduing all nations. However slowly that may occur, He is doing it according to His Word and according to His own sovereign timing. But the beauty of this is that this King is also a Savior. We understand that Jesus Christ is the appointed Savior. He is the One who makes atonement for us. He is the One who saves His people from their sins. He is the spotless Lamb of God upon whom the Lord has laid all of our iniquities. He is the one who gives us life. In Hebrews 10, 19, 22, we read this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I, I love this, I love this, because it, it, it so clearly expresses Christ's saving work. Right. That we are sprinkled clean. right? Clean from what? An evil conscience. Even our conscience is affected in salvation? Yes! We are purified by His blood. And we enjoy all of the benefits and fellowship of this new covenant. So Jesus is that Lamb of God. He is the King who laid down His life for His people. He is Lord and He is Savior. And and that is the joy of salvation, friends. You may not, when you receive Christ, when you are regenerated and come to saving genuine faith in Him, you may not know every point of doctrine about Him, but you will know two things undeniably about Jesus. One, He is Savior. And two, He is King. You will bow to Him as Lord. You will recognize who is running the show now. That's why why when we proclaim the Gospel, we confront your rebellion. right? We confront your unbelief. Because there is a King. There is a King. And you owe Him your trust and your love and obedience. The bad news is you can't do it on your own. But the good news is, is that God is powerful to do so. And God is gracious to do so. And so we urge men to repent and believe the gospel that Christ has done everything necessary to ensure to ensure our salvation from beginning to end that is who Christ is he is the lord and savior and so we follow him and we uphold the same commandment we love god and we love our neighbor not as ourselves not only as ourselves but we love our neighbor as Christ loves us Listen to, what, listen to what Calvin says regarding this. That God may then continually shine upon us. We must devote ourselves to that study. Let our faith at the same time acquiesce in witnesses so certain and credible. For when we have the prophets and apostles agreeing with us, nay, as the ministers of our faith and God as the author and angels as approvers, there is no reason that the ungodly, all united, listen to this, should move us from our position By the commandment of the apostles, he means the whole doctrine in which they had instructed the faithful, right? Everything pertaining to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I love that. Why should the ungodly, even all united, move us from our position? Friends, we have to quit ceding ground. We have to quit rolling over and dying. We have to stand our ground against the ungodly against those who rebel against Christ and His gospel. But a couple things we can draw from this in terms of this witness that we have from the prophets and from the commandment of Christ Himself. There's five T's. We'll get through them quick. Five T's. First, there is unity. We've already talked about this. Agreement between the Testaments. Continuity. The same Lord authors it. The same Lord reveals it. And of course, the same Lord saves Secondly there is authority right these are not suggestions these are commandments right this is the lord's authoritative word that's why we read 2 Timothy 3:16 that all scripture is breathed out by god and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness you think about that correction there is an authority behind that correction Means, meaning that if we do not repent We will die. That's why we understand Scripture is so authoritative that to disobey it means certain death. There's also this. So when when Christ speaks, His Word is authority. His Word is law, but His Word is also life-giving grace. Third, there is clarity. Scripture is clear in its witness, both Old Testament and New Testament. There is no confusion as to who is Lord and to who is Savior. Think about this. Even Jesus clarified this for the sake of of men. In in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, this clarity is, is brought forth by Christ Himself talking to these two men, and He said, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter His glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, see the pattern here? The holy prophets... He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. And so we do the same thing by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't don't preach law to people so as to burden them. We pronounce the law of God so that they will turn to Christ in faith and be free from its condemnation. So that then the law can be a guide rather than a source of judgment. Fourthly, there is certainty speaks of the accuracy of the Word of God. Listen to Psalm 19, 7-9. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Now listen to this. The testimony of the Lord is sure. There's no doubt about it. Making wise the simple. You You know you are reading a good source when you go from being simple to wise. What does it mean to be wise? It means to understand the Word of God. And it means to understand how to apply it. Listen to verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. Well, that's arrogant. That's narrow minded. Well, so what? It's right. Rejoicing the heart. And then finally, at the end of verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They're true. They are righteous altogether. There is certainty. There is a certain comfort that we take in reading God's word that it will do its work, that it is powerful to save, that it That it sanctifies us. That it will never abandon its work in the life of a true believer. Hence there is the fifth and final one from Isaiah 40, verse 8. Stability. That is the enduring nature. The unwavering strength and truth and work of God's Word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. That is, that is the greatness of God's Word. And so I want to take this, and we'll close here pretty, pretty soon, but I want to take this and just use this to speak to the three themes that Peter will be addressing in the rest. I want to do sort of a very brief overview of what to expect in chapter 3 because that is what we are calling to mind specifically. Right? That's what we're calling to mind Three very quick things. And they're especially useful for us today. But these three themes are this. First, and and, and I want to explain this through this instruction of remembering. So here's the first one. Remember that God, in His righteousness, will judge, right? So this... He is faithful in punishing the wicked. That's what we remember about God. Remember that he is faithful to punish the wicked. Yes, the Lord punishes unrepentant sinners. His wrath abides on unbelievers. And that is what is going on here. The coming day of the Lord in verse 3 of chapter 3 that mockers will come with their mocking, following their after their own lust, saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" See, there's a doubt of Christ's judgment. Things are going on as they always have been. And yet, he tells these churches, remember what we have said regarding the day of the Lord. And as we get into this passage, we'll give specific um, Old and New Testament Scriptures pointing to this reality, this impending reality, this day of judgment. That no matter what the unbeliever says, God is faithful in punishing the wicked. He will vindicate His own word and He will vindicate His people. So He's faithful in punishing the wicked. Secondly is this, and we take heart in this because we know that it's not as if creation is going to end when God punishes the wicked. But secondly, He is powerful in purifying creation. So in verse 10, it starts this really amazing description of not just the day of the Lord, but what will result from it. A new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Verse 13, that is the Lord purifying creation. Remember, it's not as if He's going to blast everything to smithereens and start from scratch. No, even creation right, is going to be exalted, is going to be restored far as the curse is found. Such is the effect of the gospel and Christ's current and ongoing reign. Listen to Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, listen to this, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Right now, we are living in the dispensation of subjecting. That is what Christ is doing. He is right now ruling from His throne at the right hand of the Father, subjecting all things to Himself. Now you may think, oh, we'll think. look around, things are getting worse. Are you going to trust what you think you see, or are you going to trust God's Word? Because right. as far as we can clearly tell, God's Word is going forward. The Gospel is advancing. And nothing is going to stop it. And we need to refresh our minds with that truth, with that certainty, so that we can be prepared for battle and not shrink back in cowardice. Christ is subjecting all things to Himself. And He's doing that. He's using us to do that because the way He is subjecting all things to Himself is the Gospel. Finally, thirdly, He is merciful in perfecting His people. See, we sort of have the cosmic bird's eye view of this. All of creation being restored and exalted. And then He works in us on a personal level. Right? That is why at the, at the end of chapter 3, he talks about, look at verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Well, how do we do that? But by the work of the Lord in our own hearts. And then he says, don't be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But then this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ lord and savior jesus christ see that's god's mercy at work giving us everything we need to be perfected in him so those are the three primary themes that we are to call to mind constantly now think about that god sanctifying his people god judging the wicked god restoring and renewing creation those are three enormous themes in scripture i would defy you to try to find a few bigger themes right These are things, these three in particular, and there may be more, but these three are so key to the endurance of the church. These are three things from time immemorial that those who claim Christ as Lord and Savior are to constantly stir their sincere minds up by way of reminder, to never forget this. Right? The Christian who grows lax in reminding himself of these things is a useless Christian. And we don't want to be useless. We want to be useful in the hands of the Redeemer. And so as we go forward in closing our study of 2 Peter, we will call those things to mind. God's faithfulness, His power, and His mercy. And I trust that the ministry of the Word itself as His Spirit works in our own midst we will be well-equipped to continue to stand firm, to stand strong, and to stand faithful against everything that rebels against our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love and goodness to us. We, uh, just to get a, a brief overview of this, of this chapter, so many more texts we could have consulted, but we will... We, will, uh, we know that You make all things beautiful in Your time, so uh, we trust in Your provision, uh, the, the activity of Your Holy Spirit in making us of one mind together as we strive uh, in His power uh, for the Gospel, for the glory of our Lord, and uh, Lord, for the perfection of Your people. We, we, we can rejoice in the fact that You have not forgotten us, You have not left, left us out, that even though we were once sinners, Christ died for us. And that Morvan, snatching burning brands out of the fire, You are shaping us, You are conforming us into useful instruments. Ones whose sole purpose is to bring You honor and glory, and we delight in that calling. And we ask, Lord, especially in light of the events of yesterday in Denver and the, and, and the passages of unjust laws and our desire to confront an unbelieving society with the gospel we lord we we so badly want to rely on you to depend on your your strength and not our own, and Lord, whatever it takes to to humble us, and even we we, we pray this with some with some holy dread, do whatever it takes that that may happen um, that we would trust in you and no other, and not in our own not in our own ideas, not in our own strength and wisdom, not even in our own creativity. Lord, we want You. We want You to be all in all in our body. That You alone would be glorified. And we thank You, Lord, ahead of time because we know You are faithful and we know You will do this work in helping us stand for for righteousness and to stand for grace. And in this, Lord, we pray in faith. In the name of Christ our Savior and our Lord. Amen.